This is Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Denise, Danielle, and Ben for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 14, Bosque. Today we are joined by Erica Bioris, a co-host on the Meeple Syrup Show, who's worked on games like Kadama 3D, Roar, King of the Pride, Scott Pilgrim Miniatures the World, Steven Universe, Beachapalooza Card Battling Game, and others. She also co-designed this episode's Spotlight Game Bosque along with Daryl Andrews, published by Floodgates Game. Thank you for setting aside time to talk with us today, Erica. Um, to get started, wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into the game design community. Okay. Um, I mean, like most people in game design, I've been gaming my whole life. Uh, we literally used to play cards uh, for chores. Uh, it was our form of gambling growing up. We actually Oh my God, really? Yes. My family actually played a lot of gambling games. Uh, one side of my family has uh, like just immediate like aunts, uncles, first cousins. There's over 40 of us. And we used to play this game called Screw Your Neighbor, where everybody would contribute three quarters to it. And it, it's kind of like a a bit of a press your luck, you know, uh, bluffing betting game kind of thing. It's like high card kind of like stays, low card pays. So your goal is not to lose all your quarters. If you do, you're out. And so the person at the end has 40, pe 40 people's worth of quarters. So it's actually quite a bit of money when you really think about it. But yeah, we would also play like Euchre for like who had to do dishes and things like that. That is amazing. I still have to do like coin laundry. So I kind of want to play that game with your family. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if people really have coins like that lying around anymore. Um, yeah, so what I ended up doing was, uh, I mean, I'm actually an elementary school teacher uh, full time. That's my my regular job, my day thing. Um, but without meaning to, I was, I mean, I was kind of always gamifying everything. That's exactly kind of what the underlying of my job is, is breaking down information and finding really fun or novel ways of delivering it. And so without really thinking about it, I was designing games, uh, or as I said, gamifying everything. And so when I started kind of thinking like, hey, like I, I this game design thing's kind of interesting. I kind of want to see if I could do it myself. Um, you know, this was I think I just, I kind of said, Hey, I should make a game. I think this was like 2016 or something. And I was like, let's see what happens. Um, but there really isn't a lot of prototyping stuff or conventions in uh, Canada. Funny enough. Uh, there's a ton of designers here and I'll get into that in a minute, but there's really not a lot of publishers and there's almost like uh, no conventions. So uh, I just wanted to get a grasp of what this, game industry was. Uh, and I kind of I met up with some people who were um, playtesting games at Snakes and Lattes. So again, luckily, I live in Toronto. So there is places like Snakes and Lattes where people, you know, they'd have designer nights once a week. And so there we, we literally have regulars. Um, and we decided that we were going to why not start a prototyping convention because there really wasn't anything like that is super grassroots. But at the time, I was friends with um, 
I became talking about before the show online friends, like people you talk to, but don't actually know until later. Yeah. Uh, I had become friends with Tony Miller, who is one of the co-hosts of Breaking Into Board Games. And he's like, well, you have all these designers in your own backyard. I was like, really? <laughs> like I do? Um, yeah, because I basically live near Daryl Andrews and Eric Lang and Sen Fong Lim and, you know, all these other great people. They all live in my hood kind of thing. And I had no idea, but I actually, you, I reached out to them to see if they wanted to be part of, um, part of the prototyping convention. And they actually all said yes. And that's actually how I met pretty much all of them. Um, was but, this proto TO or what was this the was proto TO? So I helped okay. I helped start the first proto TO. That's so crazy, yeah. Because we had Pam on the show and we kind of talked about it a little bit, but that's insane that you started out that way. Yeah, it was me, Pam, um, Alicia, and Kevin were the four of us who started a proto TO. Well, and technically Pam's sister. I mean, she totally <laughs> was a big part of that too. Um, and then. From there, I mean, that was a great way to learn kind of it was a giant crash course in this industry a little bit. And without meaning to, um, I started pacing myself against the people who are here, not realizing that they were like Eric Lang and Andrews and all these other people. So I'm going at a pace that I think is normal. And everyone else is like, wow, you're crazy. So (laughs) I just thought that's the way it was. I kind of jumped in without knowing I jumped in. Uh, Because Daryl and I, you know, we'd be seen running around conventions, but we both pull like a suitcase with us because we genuinely have that many prototypes. Like we we kind of make games across this. We do a lot of co-designs together. uh, So we have games across many different spectrums because there's so many different types of publishers. But to other people, we're (laughs) I'm sure we look crazy. Right, because there's certain people who focus on one game and that's their thing. We tend to have multiple ones on the go at the same time, um, and that was sort of my kind of like my journey into all of this. Is uh, I guess uh, speed creating and speed pitching to the point where it was either like <laughs> you know keep going or fail. <laughs> um, I definitely learned a lot, and I will fully say that the industry's changed quite a bit in the last five years that I've been in it. Uh, You know, it went from, honestly, people just assuming I was the girlfriend of like whatever random guy was standing at a booth, even though I was waiting for like (laughs) to go have a pitch meeting to people actually being, you know, knowing who I am. And I I think there's definitely been a shift in a a really good way, but I will fully admit that that wasn't that long ago. It's kind of a shame that that was the assumption, but you know, I had that conversation literally today with Kathleen Mercury just about how weird it is to be a girl and like how some people it doesn't feel any different from being a guy as a game designer and in other ways it's so incredibly different being in this industry where it is I mean it's mostly guys. It, yeah, it's like 98% guys. Uh you know when you really notice it is uh panels uh, cause unless they're tend to be focused only on women, in which case that it's all women up there. Um, most panels there's usually a girl if there's any at all. And so when you end up being the only girl or honestly not seeing girls, that's when you really start to feel the difference. Very true. So Erica, yeah, you were talking, or I should say, 
our spotlight game for you this evening is Bosk. And for any of our listeners who maybe haven't played the game yet before, could you paint us a picture, uh, maybe a nice little clearing, uh, so to speak, about what uh, the game is like and, and kind of just the general rules? Yeah. Um, uh, so Bosk is, I mean, visually, it's very calm and very pretty uh, because you're building a forest. Uh, you're planting trees and then you are using those trees to blow leaves in different directions based on the wind. Uh, and your main goal is, uh, is kind of area majority. You're trying to take over these kind of zones on the ground, which are all these different terrain types. So there could be like water and grass and, you know, all these different things. Um, there's eight different zones that you can try to take over when you're playing uh uh, across the different player counts. What's really neat about it is most of the time when you have any type of area game, it's almost always combative, right? Um, majority of air, like area control games, area majority games, usually it's fighting centric or fighting based. So what was kind of fun about Bosk and was very intentional is we kind of wanted to subvert or change that a little bit. Um, because Bosk is very much an area control game, or I mean, area majority is the correct term for it. Uh, but it's not aggressive because if you mm -hmm. actually play aggressively, you're likely to lose because it's going to cost you too much. Uh, because in this game, you can cover up other people's leaves to take over air, like spaces of the terrain, but it's always going to cost you like an extra leaf. So effectively, you're spending more to cover less area. Um, which, I mean, it's a good option sometimes, but it's not what you want to do the whole game because if everybody else isn't attacking back, you're just going to be at the disadvantage. No, that's so true. And I love the fact that you set it up where it's multiple different seasons. How did you guys come to that decision okay, so as a design? That, that's a big love-hate sticking point for people. People either love the idea that the game is kind of like two phases or they think of it like it's two separate games. <laughs> so I love it. I thought it was such a cool idea. We had so much uh, conflicting feedback on this game, on that one aspect in particular. So <clears throat> we had people telling us, keep the first half, change the second half, keep the second half, change the first half. We'd have people say, on, we love that it's two parts. We'd have people say these two parts don't go together. So just, <laughs> just to go to show, you never know what other people's tastes are going to be sometimes, right? And this is kind of one of those things where it's great to listen to feedback, but you also have to decide, is the feedback for the type of game you want to put out there or is the feedback for the type of game they would have made, right? And to be fair, when a publisher gives feedback sometimes, you might change the game to be what they were asking for, but it doesn't actually mean that's the game that they really want. It was just something that they were thinking, right? Um, so when we finally got it to Ben, because uh, Ben Ben has a really like a good idea of exactly what types of games he wants to do. He's great at picking these super visual games. Um, I don't know if you guys saw like Holy and stuff like that. Yep. We, like, yes. Just beautiful, <laughs> right? Um, really, really gorgeous games. So he kind of saw the beauty of it. Uh, and then, well, I guess I said, what's nice is you have an area majority game where you're not fighting anybody. You're, li you're literally covering a forest floor with leaves. Right. Um, and after like, he did a little bit of finessing, uh, which is nice. And actually it was Ben who added the squirrel, which is super cute. Uh, yeah. Because we we wanted something interesting with the 
the one, but we couldn't quite come up with what it was other than like the lowest person, you know, gets to start the next round. We're like, eh, you're going to get stuck with this one. Or like he came up with the squirrel and we're like, oh, that's, that's that little extra that makes it, you know, that, that just bit more done, you know, that, that bit more ready. Um, and we're actually, we're playing around with potential expansions. We'll see what happens. Uh, just as a little, uh, little sneak peek there, but yeah, um, it, it, I'm, I'm really, I, that was the probably Bosk is the game that got me definitely more noticed, uh, by, by the gaming industry in general, because it really is hard to kind of, unless you're just standing there shouting at everyone like, Hey, look at me, which isn't really my personality. Um, (laughs) you really have to kind of like, you have to earn it. You have to win people over. You have to get, you know, good at pitching. You have to have lots of good ideas. You've got to really like work through your ideas and, you know, make sure you're getting games out there and then pray to God that people like them. (laughs) Right. Uh, so that you can hopefully keep making more. Um, and this was a great opportunity actually to show, I think very three dimensionally, unless someone specifically says, Hey, make this cards. I probably won't. Um, and so this was also a great representation of that thinking three-dimensionally because, uh, Daryl and I actually do work really well together. He basically was like, I was watching leaves and they were blowing across the ground and we're like, that's like, that could be a really, you know, pretty idea for a game. And from that, and then the idea of like, oh, let's do like 3d trees. Let's have like, we're going to have leaves blowing across the ground. And that's where boss was sort of born. That's so crazy. So he was just watching some leaves and then what called you up and was like, I want to make a leaf game. Did you just hang up on him? Like, what was your response? No, I was like, oh yeah, 3D trees. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the neat, but then figuring out how that was going to work because ultimately where the two phases of the game came from is, well, you have to actually plant the trees and that's part of the strategy. So you have to plant the trees then use those same trees to start, you know, using them as directions from where the leaves are coming from. So we're like, well, how do we set that up? And that's kind of where we came up with the, well, you have to have two phases of the game because you are planting and you're removing, right? For sure. Did you originally start with the idea of the four seasons? Because I mean, you have two phases, but you really, you have four seasons in it. Yes, it was always like, uh, the idea was like a full... We were saying it was like a year kind of thing uh, because originally we 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 started pulling the um, the trees off the board just to make it so much easier to actually score up and clean up. Obviously, it's a little weird <laughs> thematically. We're like, yeah, let's just kill all the trees. But really, uh, what we're trying to do is the idea, like going from the the you know the start of the tree all the way to like you know the end of the its season kind of idea so it was always going to be a life cycle of a tree kind of idea i think the only thing that changed there is for yellow we originally had uh instead of because we each of the leaves as you saw is a unique shaped based on the type of tree it is because each of those really is a tree that changes that color of leaf so there's purple which i believe was sassafras Sassafras. Uh, Sassafras <laughs> turns purple. Um, there was uh, oak, which is the 
orangish orange. Orange, yeah. Uh, there's obviously maple because, you know, we're Canadian. We've we've actually snuck we've snuck Canadian references into a lot of our games, whether people <laughs> yes. notice it or not. Um, and then uh, the last one, originally the yellow, it's, I think it's a birch now kind of idea. Was they it an pine. aspen tree before? No, funny enough, we were like, oh, well, let's just make them like pine cones or something. <laughs> so, okay. so funny enough originally because we're like we want to put what's unique to falling from that tree but in that color and we i was like yeah yellow's pine cones or something and then we eventually just changed it like nah they're all leaves but yes they were pine cones at one point <laughs> that's really awesome erica you talked about kind of the inception um of of bosque could you talk a little bit about sort of where the idea for like the main area uh, majority mechanic came from? Like, obviously, the, the leaves were blowing around on the ground. That's a lovely thing. But like, what what sort of maybe had you both thinking, oh, of course, you know, this is how we want to make this game as opposed to, I don't know, like some kind of maybe journeying sort of game, perhaps? Yeah, um, I think if we're, you know, uh, a lot of the times when we work on games, or it's probably pretty much my approach to all games. For me, the mechanics and the theme are very, very intertwined. Like when people ask about one versus the other, I want to say to a degree the theme comes first slightly. It's more just like what world am I playing in? That's really what a theme is. is like it's what is this reality? What is the skeleton? Right. And then everything else gets built off of that so that it makes as much sense as possible. There's, mm-hmm. I think it creates very much, very, so much less um, kind of like dissonance and like uh, disconnects from when people are like, but I don't get why I'm doing this. Right. Or I don't get what this is for. Well, that's because the logic of the game doesn't match the theme, I find. Um, so when we're even talking about leaves, it was like, okay, well, how do leaves act? okay, well, if we're going to have that, it's kind of this idea of this blowing these leaves and like kind of, a, you know, as a, a nice image, we're like, yeah. well, what's the intention of it? And so ultimately you're covering space, right? If leaves are dropping, they're literally covering space. And so it made sense from what you were doing that it would be some sort of area game. But as I said, it's kind of funny because most area games are not about like, a forest <laughs> right so um i think it was a maybe a bit of a neat juxtaposition there of taking a mechanic that usually is combat focused and applying it to a tranquil setting mm-hmm. yeah right on that's really cool you've designed so many different games i'm curious what did you find special about this particular design what was really nice about this one, as much as I love like all the IP stuff I've been doing recently, um, IP will always expire at some point. Um, no matter what, that game's gonna lose, you know, run out of time, and technically, let's say, can't be sold again, right? Unless people want to renew licenses. One of the really neat things about Bosque is not only did it resonate really well with people, but it's an original design on top of it. Meaning it's not going to just disappear because people don't like that, you know, movie or TV show anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it's it's inter- it's not something I even think everybody thinks about. But you know, you really hope that one day you're going to be able to be, have that that evergreen game, and not that Bosque is necessarily an evergreen game, but it was that step towards the, you know, what could this game like? What could that kind of be like? Um, as I, I love IP work, I generally do. I love playing in these sandboxes, but there is a very real reality that the game has a much shorter shelf life. You know, I never really thought about that, how the IP can lose its luster. I mean, sure, we have things like Scooby-Doo that's going to keep coming back and back and back and back in many different versions. But I mean, I know you have this Steven the Universe game and it's like, is that going to become this huge classic in 10, 20, 30 years or is it going to be gone? That's the thing. It literally can't. Um, So Steven Scooby-Doo is an example. Let's say, you know, because there's been a few Scooby-Doo theming coming out recently. Let's say that they want to continue that same Scooby-Doo line. They have to keep paying the Scooby-Doo licensor every time they want to do, like, keep printing it. So you ever wonder why those monopolies disappear, those IP monopolies? Because who wants to pay for the license every year? So they do limited runs. Yep. That makes me less motivated to want to do anything IP related. It's fun. Like, as I said, I absolutely adore playing in someone like someone else's sandbox. And I loved like Scott Pilgrim was 100% like just a love letter to Scott Pilgrim. Like I loved the comic. I couldn't wait. I never made a mini skirmish game before, but I was like, I'm going to make this as crazy as I can. Like as if, you know, like a, a cartoon video game came to life because it's what the comic felt like. And so it was, it was really cool to get to, you know, to kind of show how much you can be a fan of something by making the game for it. But part of that love is understanding that that game, you know, will only be around for so long. That's true. When you were playtesting Bosk, I know it is very 3D and mm-hmm. you did mention that you design a lot in 3D. How did you start to make those prototypes and what did playtesting look like? Oh, it was 3D to start. I love that. <laughs> the trees were actually like, uh, like uh, you know, cutouts where what we did is we took the slat out of the top and bottom, so they slid together to kind of create like an X. And that would be the standing tree. Um, at one, And then we had the numbers at the top. And we played around with, is it the numbers, like, is it perfect information? Is there partly hidden information? Uh, again, we got really crazy conflicting feedback on that one. But we ended up saying, you know what? Everyone should be able to see the number. It should be seen pretty much from every angle um, because really what they're focused on is the direction and coverage. We don't need to have any hidden hidden stuff there. So if you ever see a prototype of Bosk, other than it not looking nearly as pretty, because <laughs> I think the very first board I did was like literally just color blocked in different colors of ground color. Right. So it would be like eight squares over here, kind of yellowish, eight squares over here, like light green, you know, eight squares over here, like, I don't know, grayish. Um, And then obviously Quan Chai with his mastery of art made everything look amazingly beautiful. (laughs) So otherwise you would pretty much see something very, very similar. Uh, We had, you know, the cards one to eight, as I said, the squirrel was added, but we had the cards one to eight. Everybody had uh, leaf tokens. Everybody had three dimensional trees. The trees had the numbers one to four on the top. Um, and then it just kind of came to more like finessing it um, once we settled with who was going to publish it. Because no matter what, 
every publisher is going to want to have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of stamp on a game uh, unless they're, I mean, just looking to pick something up just to, you know, that's already, you know, let's say popular somewhere else, just so they can, you know, be the distributor here, maybe. Um, but most publishers want to, to, to add a little something, to change it up. And so just being open to knowing that, you know, things are going to be altered or changed or, you know, whether it's meant to or not. Uh, so Scott Pilgrim was a funny one because one of the minis doubled in size in production. And I was like, well, that's going to change some stuff. <laughs> but you just don't know if this is going to happen, right? What? Why? Why did it double in size? Like, did it have anything to do with the actual game or were they just like, we need a really big mini? The second one. <laughs> Got it. Lovely. <laughs> uh, because, so funny enough, when I was doing Scott Pilgrim, I actually was creating um, like style guides for the characters because we were helping uh, create the minis because the minis are also sold separate from the game as a collector set. Ooh. So it's like a toy and a play set and a game <laughs> and all kinds of things rolled into one. No it kidding, was a lot, no though, because I think there's like, is it something like somewhere between 17 and 21 unique characters and everybody, almost every single player is uh, every single character is playable and playable differently. It was a lot. Wow. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, that sounds huge. Uh, the only non-playable character, and it's just because people really wanted him in it, um, was Wallace. And part of the reason we had to make sure he was in it. But part of the part of the disconnect issue with Willis, uh, Wallace is that in the comic, he actually has this ability that he learns from a boyfriend where he can like basically shake water off himself. He basically has like a little force field. He can move it around himself. But anybody who's used to the movie had no idea of any of that stuff about his character. Like some people are already mm-hmm. it, this is based off of the comic. So there's already going to be some stuff that if you're only familiar with the movie, you might not be understand. Like, for example, why do the, the you know, the, the Katatagi twins, why do they have evil robots? You know, it's like, well, cause they had evil robots that they tried to kill um, Scott with in the comic, but they didn't have him in the movie. And so Wallace was one of those interesting ones of, well, what do we do with him? Because and honestly, he doesn't fight anybody. He just goads them on the whole time. He has an ability, but it doesn't exist in the movie. So we're like, but we have to include Wallace. So what he did is he got <laughs> what we, um, uh, we affectionately referred it to the bitch deck. And the idea um, is it's just like all these one-liners that Wallace would throw out to, cause he's always kind of like chewing out Scott <laughs> in different ways. And like, you know, kind of pointing out why he's an idiot or, you know, things like that. So we called it the bitch deck and you get to like pull these, these Wallace quotes. Uh, just for the fun of it against the other players. That's so cute and thematic. It is hard, though, when you're pulling from different places, because I know, like, Daryl just had his Batman game on there, and I'm, like, super excited that it's based off the comic books, but a lot of people read Dark Knight and thought, oh, it's like the Dark Knight uh, Christopher Nolan movies. I'm like, oh, you were going to be disappointed. Yeah, (laughs) so not even that close to what the comic was anyway. I was at least Scott Pilgrim was like 85, 90% the same. 
Like, okay. I was like, good for it. it. There's only certain things that cut out. It was <laughs> some very Canadian things got cut out, um, like honest eds. But other than that, it wasn't that different. Like, and a lot of things were even line for line. So it was a overall a really good adaptation. So I don't think people will be that disconnected. But yeah, between the Dark Knight movies and like <laughs> the Dark Knight comics, <laughs> there's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Really fun. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, this This is an IP. Well, Scott Pilgrim was an IP. Bosk was an original IP. And then you have the original artist, yeah, Quan Shai, uh, Maria, uh, working on it. Did did I get that right, that you had um, communicated with him for the prototype, or that was a publisher decision by Floodgate? Um, the publisher reached out to Quan Shai. I've actually been lucky enough to have a few Quan Shai covers now. Uh, he's an awesome guy, a great artist. Um, he's come to visit Toronto a few times, and uh, I've actually got got to meet his really nice wife. She's super sweet. Uh, <laughs> doesn't speak a lot of English, but super sweet. Um, he's honestly just a really, really great person. But he's an on- he's a great artist. Uh, and if you look carefully on the cover of Bosk, you'll see that he put Daryl and I on it. Whoa. Wait, no way. I want to go grab it right now. So you'll notice the two hikers on the box. Uh, There's a redhead with a ponytail, and then you'll see a bearded dude with uh, a baseball hat. Okay, I was going to say, obviously the redhead was Daryl, but I think he just kind of uh, booted (laughs) that one. He put put us on the covers, and (laughs) then he made it... like a red, kind of like a redwood forest a little bit. Like he set it more around his, like his home. Like, I think he's out in uh, somewhere in California right now, but he kind of set it around there. Oh, I love the art. Yeah. Do you see the hiker in the back with the hat going up the trail? Yeah. That's Daryl. Really cool. I love it. There's an Easter egg. essentially. <laughs> uh that's really cool. And the art is incredible. Quanchai's art is one of my favorites. We didn't know he did that. <laughs> we're like, so it was funny. I, I forget how long it took me to notice. And I go, Quanchai, is that us on the box? He's like, yeah. Wow. That's cool. That's the best. But I honestly, we did not notice for the longest time either. Uh, he also did, he did the box for uh, Kadama 3D. Hmm. Did he do another one too? Anyway, yeah, he's he's awesome. Uh, Matt Paquette did a bunch of the art on on Bosk as well. He's also really awesome. Oh, wonderful. So, how did you find Floodgate? Why did they end up being the right publisher for Bosk? Uh, it was an interesting time for Floodgate because that was right before or right around the time that Ben had decided to go full time. Uh, he wasn't a full time publisher yet. Sagrada had just come out and and seemed to be doing like pretty well because uh, Sagrada was another interesting one where people, a lot of publishers turned it down because they were like, Dice is just too expensive, right? And I was just like, okay. And now they're probably kicking themselves <laughs> so badly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so Ben was the person who didn't say immediately like, oh, I can't do Dice, you know? And so that was already a big difference with him because obviously the quality of this really matters uh anyone who's seen it it's a lot of wood and 3d cardboard so you you really really want to have a high production on this and so it it mattered that it honestly looked it looked good and it was durable and 
that definitely kind of took us to like floodgate, uh, especially after like, you know, how great the Sagrada experience was going. Uh, He also didn't immediately tell us like, hey, this is two separate games. (laughs) Like he got it. Um, And he was super eager to kind of like get going on it right away. Uh, You know, I think we showed him it at BGG and he, he took it home at BGG uh, in whatever year that was, 2018. So that was going to be my next question is just how long do you think it took in total to go from that inspiration of him watching the leaves all the way to it getting published? Well, I would, I'm pretty sure the prototype was done. Maybe BGG was 2017. I want to say that I remember playing the prototype for it at Proto T. I think it was her second Proto TO. Yeah. Or as a second proto TO, so it would have been like 2017. And so I want to, yeah, we probably showed it at BGD 2017. Uh, ben took it because that would have been like November. I think it got signed. And then when did it come out? I think it came out. I want to say it was an Origins release. So it might have been like once he took it. It was, it was, uh, it was going to print. Oh, I don't know. I'm terrible with, with times and dates. I want to say it was going to, you know, it was pretty much ready in about six months from then and then getting printed or something. I could be off on time though. That's okay. I mean, that's general. That sounds good. And I will say this game is a game that I've shown to non-gamers and just because of the quality and how beautiful it looks I never have to fight them on giving it a shot. So I appreciate that. And when Ben, if he ever hears us, he can listen to me saying, good job. <laughs> he's he's really open to like what something can be like and what kind of materials you can put in. So if anybody out there has, you know, that idea where you're like, oh, it's going to be gorgeous, but I just don't know. Honestly, he's a great person to approach then. I'll keep that in mind for tapas. Mm-hmm. It's important because every publisher has a has weaknesses and strengths, and so it's in, it's it's unfortunately something you have to get a lot of information about yourself. But you begin to learn like, oh, this one, you know, to be fair, is not going to put a lot of money into art, so you're going to want to be careful about what kind of like. Obviously, you're not going to want to pitch them like a super visual game. Or, you know, these ones really, really want to make sure, like, they have no problem with cardboard. But if you go away from cardboard, you're going to have a problem, right? That's not what they produce. Like, just knowing those those things can help a lot for what you're targeting your game, like, who you should be showing to. How long did it take for you to learn all of that just because you did jump in so quickly with the big dogs? Did they teach you? How did you start picking all that up? It's a bit of – so what's interesting is – do you ever go on a ton of interviews and you get to the point where it's like <laughs> you're just so used to interviewing? Yes, and you hardly of, need to prep. You just kind of read about the company and you're good to go. <laughs> well, what happened is is like we've been on so many pitch meetings by this point. Like if you ever saw Daryl and my um, schedule for a con, we would easily have like eight meetings a day for like five days straight kind of thing. Um. When you go at that pace, not only do you talk to a lot of people at once, but you start to hear what they say and what they're listening for or, and always asking them, like, I got into a habit of always saying, oh, what are you looking for next? Right. And I would make notes and write it down. And I'd write down like little things that they said, because you start to get um, patterns and gists where you're like, 
oh, they're never going to be interested in anything that goes over this price range. Oh, they're never going to be interested in anything that does this. Oh, this company is great because, you know, maybe they've got four brands under them and, you know, the the, the person who, um, you know, does their acquisition knows the brands amazingly. So it's like, oh, I'll take that one for this one. I'll take that one for this one. And, you know, for evaluating and the rest don't fit. And you're like, okay, awesome. You know your brands. Like you start to get to know these people, but you have to do it through experience, I find. No, that makes a lot of sense. Do you guys typically split up when you're pitching with anyone you co-design or is it just one-on-one? How do you utilize that time? Uh, We usually co-pitch just because it's incredibly tiring and you do lose your voice. Um, and remember we're, you're, we're running around like crazy. Like my, my step counts for con days are like easily 24,000 steps, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and then doing that for a week straight, it's actually a lot easier when you're rallying with another person. Like we can kind of like take turns or we got into Play really good energy. Well, we got a really good habits of just partnering. So like I would get a game ready while he's talking or he get a game ready while I was talking but you know, just going back to how much the the um, the industry has changed. I remember in our early meetings because we we worked really quickly together. We actually had more than once people just assume that we must be a married couple, and we're like, no, we're both married <laughs> nice. to like other people. Like we're just friends, which is you know what people can be. It, it, but again, it, the association for the longest time is if you're a girl in gaming, you're there because a guy brought you to a degree. You know, you just date a lot of people is what I'm hearing from this podcast. Yeah, you know what? I, so <laughs> apparently I, I did. So <laughs> just funny enough, I apparently date people by walking down the hall with them. I actually had somebody say to Daryl once, oh, I'm so sorry you broke up with your girlfriend. Literally because I was walking down a hall with another one of our friends. And you have to remember, oh, 98% of all people in gaming are guys. I apparently have dated someone because I rode up an elevator with them. I, I'm like, I'm married with children. I'm an elementary school teacher. <laughs> like, what are you guys talking about? It's so ridiculous. <laughs> but again, there's this weird thing. Like, if you're a girl in gaming, you must be... Again, I think there's definitely a shift, but... For the longest time is if you're a girl in gaming, you're there because a guy brought you. Which is really dumb, but we're hopefully moving on, getting better. I don't think I've ever been accused of dating anyone that is a dude. I'm hoping people just, I mean, I stop listening. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's funny. Um, I I actually, uh, because I'm Ukrainian Catholic, I wear my, my wedding rings on my right hand. Uh, and so for a while I assumed it was, they just didn't see my rings. So I even got in a habit of trying to wear them on my left, which is, you know, more North American. Mm. And I was like, this still isn't doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, cause now you're married to Daryl instead of dating. It's a lot more serious. <sighs> oh my God. Yeah. I'll just say, I, I can only imagine too, what it must be like for him that, you know, the only way that girls apparently want to work with him is if they're like dating him too or something. I don't know. Like on both sides is just, I mean, like it's not the nicest thing to assume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, uh, you've worked on co-designs and solo designs and do you have a preference and I'm what made this particular game a good fit for a co-design and I'm just even interested in your process on figuring out which 
which projects you pursue solo versus with a partner like Daryl? Uh, solo something I've definitely done more recently because my, my goal in gaming was actually just to learn it. I, I just wanted to understand what it was about. Um, every time I take on a new game, I actually kind of intentionally try to do a mechanic I've never done before. Um, so, you know, so people like to ask the question of like, oh, what do you think you're known for? I'm like, other than probably really crazy components, I don't think I'm really necessarily known for anything because I very intentionally try to keep making like completely different games. Best approach. Right? Uh, like it's funny, like if you compare like a boss to like a Scott Pilgrim, <laughs> I mean, you'd think I was schizophrenic, but other than <laughs> nice. you've got, you know, really nice 3D, uh, you know, component pieces that are in both. Um, because Scott Pilgrim was based off this idea of kind of like a pop-up storybook. And so the back of the board actually does pop up the, so did the stage and everything else. But, uh, we were really worried about, you know, long-term usage. So the stage ended up becoming more of a block that actually allows mm. you to store the pieces in as well. And, but oh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and when, so in terms of, doing solo, I never really thought about doing, like, I mean, when I first started making games, I made them on my own. Um, but there's something very nice about being part of a creative team. And, you know, most of my background is, uh, is, you know, working in creative for the most part and definitely working in teams. Um, you're going to be able to come up with something so much more sometimes interesting, um, so much quicker, like just troubleshoot things so much faster with a good co-designer. Not that, you know, everybody's good at co-designing or not that everybody can work together, but if you are someone who generally can, you know, work with most people, I feel like most people are going to find co-designing is a really good experience. Um, it speeds things up. It, you get ideas that you wouldn't have had on your own, you know, things that would have taken, you know, months or weeks of playtesting, you know, you might be able to figure out in just a conversation with another person. Um I had to definitely build up my confidence as a game designer before I wanted to go out and design on my own. Uh, I think I just felt a lot of pressure of, you know, what's going to be my first solo game that, you know, going into retail. And so Scott Pilgrim actually is my first solo game. And it's, well, I say game, but it's like six games. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. It's got, it originally had more, but it has four different unique terrain boards. It has every one of the evil X's, obviously with the twins being together. And some of yeah. them have like sidekick companions. Um, you know, it's got every one of Scott's friends, except for Julie, though there was, I actually had designed Julie's apartment as a board and I designed the Toronto Public Library as a board, but those two didn't end up being created. Um but yeah, other than Julie, everybody's in there. There's even three different versions of Ramona because everybody has a different favorite. Uh, and so the characters change. She goes from being someone who tends to run away to somebody who stands and fights. But it's also to get in the purple-haired, blue-haired, and turquoise-haired Ramona. <laughs> <laughs> so were you approached then to do these solo designs since you do prefer to work as a partner? This one I was, um, especially because I'm from Toronto and already was a fan of the comics. It is like the comic is 100% based in Toronto. There's everything about it is Toronto um, because uh, Brian O'Malley is from Toronto. The, 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 the creator. 
Yeah. Very cool. Um, and so fun thing too, is I got to actually go meet him. Um, which was really neat and play. He had yeah. little kittens at the time. We got to play with his kittens. Uh, and but yeah, I was approached to do that, and I was actually really nervous because I was like, "Oh my god, I have to do something." Almost, you know, having having creative partners is a bit of a safety net in its own way, because you always have other people's opinions to keep you going. So uh, this is definitely it was definitely a bigger undertaking, but I, I think overall my confidence in myself has changed a lot. You know, in these five years, that now. You know, if I come up with an idea for a game, I can cr- I can prototype it and create it pretty quickly. At that point, it becomes, do I want someone else's input anymore? Or am I just kind of happy, you know, doing this on my own? And so more than I've ever done before, I do have more of my own stuff coming. Um, but I do prefer co-design. And what makes you a good co-design partner? If you were to stand there in front of everyone and be like, pick me, pick me, what are your qualities that would make you a good co-design? And what do you look for on the opposite side? I look at a good co-designer as almost like a a good improv partner is what I always say. Um, If someone said no to you three times, you already can't work with them. Because how are you supposed to piggyback from each other, right? There, there are ways of expressing to somebody like how you think you should change direction or what kind of ideas you want to put out there. But someone who just says no isn't really going to help you get your ideas flowing, at least personally. Um, obviously, there can also be too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes too. So realize, you know, you don't want someone who's got all the exact same strengths as you either you want someone who's going to help you know in some ways balance out the things that you're not as strong at because otherwise honestly like why does a game need just need two of you right when it can have two separate people um you know i i used to be in advertising and you would you would constantly see people in uh, creative moving together. They moved as teams because when you find someone who you're really good at working with, it honestly just makes the process, I mean, like easier and fun and, you know. So that's what you hope to find in a good co-designer. The other thing is, uh, at least for me, I think incredibly fast and I generate ideas very, very quickly. I need someone who can move pretty quickly too. So if it someone needs to think about something for a very long time before they make a decision, we're probably not going to be good co-designers because I don't function like that. I also have ADD, but um, I, I can, I'm up for just trying something right away. And it's like, even if we don't agree on something, I'd rather just try it than argue anymore. Mm-hmm. So as long as someone is more about progressing forward, um, They'll always, I I mean, I feel like I would have never have an issue working with them. I'm always willing to try working with people. I can tell pretty quickly when it's not going to work. But again, it falls into the, how many times can you say no? Or do you throw everything in the kitchen sink in? In which case it's like, I can't necessarily parse this out. Yeah. How do you end up in different like partnerships? Do they, do people come to you or do you go to them? Uh, Both. So I've been, I've been approached to do stuff. I've approached other people to do things. Um, it really depends on the idea. 
And again, I'm going to say there, there's definitely a confidence thing there. Like when I was less confident, otherwise, I, you know, I definitely would have been like, hey, you want to make a game with me? You know, because I probably would have felt silly about it. But you slowly get, especially as you learn, you know, um, a lot of des- like a lot of designers, we play test with each other. So you start to learn, you know, people's preferences and the way they think it becomes a good way of also being like, hey, we'd probably make something fun together. Or if you, you know, sometimes you might be contracted for a project, you might say, oh, like, for example, when I was approached about um, Steven Universe, I was like, well, I know another gigantic Steven Universe fan, you know? I was like, can I do a co-design? And then I was like, and I, so I, I asked if I could bring on Andrew Wolf because like he and I literally watched the cartoon together, right? <laughs> but it's because I knew he was a super fan that we ended up co-designing. Oh, that's so cool. I just am so fascinated since I am just starting to do more of the co-design stuff, just how some people work so well to do it. And it's not only that you're doing it with the same person, but you're able to successfully do it with many people. It's impressive. I think you just have to be, I mean, again, I'm a school teacher. So if I can't work with other people, I'm probably failing at my job. Um, You know, like I teach people how to cooperate for a living. Uh, But yeah, I think the thing is just knowing that you're going in to make, (coughs) I guess the best way to put it is the best product you can. Like if you have to know what you're going in for, if you're going into just for the fun of it, then it better be fun. If you're going in to make a sellable product, then like as long as the product is the focus and that's kind of like the goal that's in mind, you should be able to function as a team together because you have the same end goal, right? You're working towards the same, the same thing realistically. Um, Yeah, I'm lucky. Actually, I'm just starting the dev work now on a co-design with, uh, so Senfeng Lim and I are doing the the Rat Queens game. And this is the first time, you know, we've worked on something together. But, you know, at the same time, we've been friends for years now. And I think that definitely can help too. It definitely helps to know someone a little bit better because obviously you're not going to get into the same problems of, maybe misinterpreting what they're saying or, you know, you, you tend to understand each other a little bit. Like, you know, Daryl will, will sometimes jokingly be like, oh, don't worry, I speak Erica, you know, because you, you need that nice. to a degree. <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit and ask, how did you get involved with maple syrup and how has that influenced how you approach game design and even the relationships you formed, even the sort of partnerships around design? Uh, You know what? Maple syrup was a great way to force me to stop being shy in any way. (laughs) Uh, I used to be in advertising and I always laughed at people like that sort of beat out of me being shy about getting up in group, like front of people and, you know, teaching in a lot of ways is kind of like you're performing every day. Right. So it's funny. I never had a problem with that, but I used to have like these mini like panic attacks uh, before going on maple syrup because it's live and it's live. And I don't know these people and like, you know, it's being recorded. And I remember just like the absolute panic, like the first even few months that I did it. Uh, but I came on because I came on to join uh, Daryl and Sen because they're actually the two who started maple syrup. And, uh, but then right at that time, uh, I think Daryl, Daryl ended up going cause he was going to, I think he was either starting a 
starting a company or working for a company. Anyway, so long story short, I ended up kind of part of maple syrup. And the more the time went on, not only did it kind of get, you know, easier and easier. Now, I mean, I don't even think about talking to people. I'm just like, yeah, let's just fill an hour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, now it's nothing, yeah. but you have to kind of push to get past that. And I feel like that's what a lot of, I mean, if there's a lot of lessons in gaming, it's really kind of pushing through until you can find what works for you because there's no, there's no clear path in this and everything that's happening. Um, I'm actually going to be one of the new co-hosts for Ludology as well. Uh, that's coming I up shortly. I did hear that. Uh, that's so that's so cool. exciting. What's really neat about both is it um, allows me to talk to not only people that I don't know in the industry, uh, like it gives me, it gives me opportunities to definitely highlight people I do know and make sure like, you're like, oh, this person's great. I don't think I've ever seen them on something, you know, let's try to book them, that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also a way of meeting like tons of new people, or at least getting to see their faces. Like I might know their names, but never really necessarily talk to them. And so it's a chance to kind of get like a, you know, a chat with them where everybody else gets to drop in on that chat to understand, you know, what their job is or what they went through or what their process is, right? And so we do the live show, uh, you know, every Wednesday with the intent of trying to introduce somebody, introduce what they do. And the hope is to share, you know, the, the things that they've learned along the way. I've definitely enjoyed checking into a few of those episodes and everyone has such a different path. I mean, it's crazy. Like our person last yesterday is a full-time developer at uh, Fantasy Flight and she was a music major. I love that. I have so many friends that are music majors. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really funny or like, you know, um, so I just like my, my piggybacking background, I went... When I originally went to school, I went for advertising and marketing. Uh, then I realized <laughs> we were spending like millions of dollars on campaigns that, you know, didn't matter in like a week. Uh, so I kind of switched gears and I went into teaching and then I went into game design and people were like, well, what do those have in common? I'm like, they all use the exact same skills, <laughs> you know, they all really use creativity and problem solving um, and, you know, teamwork and all these other things. I'm like, it's kind of the same thing, just in a different package. <laughs> so interesting. And to circle back to Bosque, which is the reason you're here, what was your favorite and least favorite experience in the journey of this particular design compared to all your other ones? Uh, I mean, actually, I don't think there was any least favorite. To be honest, working with Ben is, uh, is a great experience. Bosque came out really well. Um, I mean, it wasn't a game that it had to be gutted. It was just something that was like nicely finessed in all the right ways just to make it that more polished, which is always what you want. You know, never, never only work on a game by yourself. You need other people's eyes because we don't all think the same way. Uh, And what you assume a player is going to do does not mean that's actually what they're going to do. (laughs) So it's not just about playtesting, but, uh, you know, just, just making sure that, you know, you've got, I would always say if you can get it, Get someone else to develop your game uh, because you need someone who's not, who's not, you know, super connected to it. Someone who can be more impartial because they're going to see all the things you don't. That's awesome advice. 
don't don't be the only person who touches something. It's not going to go well. You did mention though that there were people that were very disconnected and felt like you should do two separate games. That wasn't your least favorite part of this journey. Just like hearing that or being told you need to do something different. You know what? It's not a least favorite. It's something they have to learn. So, for example, when you're you know when you're playtesting with uh, any playtesters. It's not just what they're saying. It's like, what is their body language? What are they really meaning? Because sometimes people say things, but they're not really saying what they're meaning. And so it, you're, it's like learning how to interpret <laughs> what they mean. Like, you know, they someone might not speak a lot, but if they're playing the game and suddenly they're leaning in and they're super, like their body language is saying they're very involved, they don't need to say anything, right? And so I, I feel like with publisher feedback, what they're saying is... They're saying that's not how our company would do it, right? So just because a publisher says no doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with the game. It's just not right for them. Um, and so knowing that, you know, someone would want to cut a game in half, it's either that's what you want to do as well, which is not what we wanted to do, right? Or you keep looking for the right yeah. publisher. It seems like you definitely found the right publisher for this game, especially. I think we were very lucky. I mean, I, I very, I very intentionally tried to work with different publishers. I will tell you, not one experience is the same at all. Um, and so that's the other. That's the weird thing about hobby is because there's no, there's no standardization. Um, a lot of it is learn as you go. I've definitely started to pick that up in the past few years. Yeah, and, and and things do change. I mean, I'll even say what's expected out of designers seems to be changing. Um, there's kind of almost like more and more expected where, you know, you once upon a time you'd hear these stories about people like, you know, drawing things on napkins and stuff like that. I'm like, nowadays, you know, your uh, publishers even want input on, you know, um, card layouts and design styles and, you know, like thematic looks and things like that. Right. Yeah. It's it. They want someone who's going to kind of help deliver the product. I guess there's a lot of blended lines of job descriptions in the hobby. It's so true. Have you done anything on the mass market side yet? I've pitched a bunch to like Hasbro spin master Mattel. I actually had a spin master game that was contracted, but didn't end up coming out. Cause you know, they can be pretty finicky. Um, I'm trying to get some things done with kind of like Ravensburger. The one thing you have to know about about mass and so mass is in like kind of like the New York toy fair crowd is their toy as much as game, but they're not hobby. And so if you approach that market like that, you'll do a lot better. If you approach it like hobby, they have no idea what you're talking about. And basically what you'll hear is take the game out, take the game out. Um, because really yeah. what they need is they need one idea or like almost like half of mechanic or two halves of mechanics put together, but very intro to the idea. What, what a lot of people don't recognize is that there's a ton of prior knowledge that is necessary to be good at hobby games. Um, just to even use the word deck builder. If I use, if I said that everybody, you know, listening right now is like, Oh, I know right. that. Yep. Say that to the average person. They have no idea what you're talking about. And so you've now just put another barrier in front of them. Cause it's like, now they don't 
feel smart. They don't know what you're referring to. You know, I say deck builder to a hobby person. They already know all the mechanics I'm referring to. You say deck builder to the average per- mass market person, and they don't even know what you said to start off with. And so because of all that prior assumed knowledge, you can't jump into mechanics the same way with the mass market. They need what I like to refer to like as pseudo pseudo versions of those mechanics, like very like introduction to that type of mechanics so that they can find hobby mm-hmm. one day. Epic, Erica, that that's an awesome kind of tip to distinguish between right hobby and, and mass. I just if you could offer maybe just one last piece of advice, general advice or, or whatever you like to kind of any designers who are hopefully listening to this episode, uh, could you what what would that piece of advice be? Um, you know what, I think you really have to question as long as you go along, what is it that you want out of this? So if you want to publish your game, awesome. That's really important to know. Because if you want to publish your game, then you know that the next steps are now, okay, I need a product. I need to play test it. I need to know who is the right person to pitch it to. Because as we said, like, not every publisher is right for every game and not every game mm-hmm. is right for every publisher. Yeah. Right? Know that it is is a process. Know that you do not have to sign your first game with the first person that comes along, even though I know it's super enticing. Um, it's okay to ask questions because designers will talk if you ask them. But you're not going to be able to find that. Again, it's a closed group. You're not going to find that information just floating online, right? So there's a bit of a barrier there, but ask questions and people will be honest. Um, I'll also give a little plug for the the Meeple Syrup, the Meeple Syrup Shop Talk page. Um, we're almost at 1,000 people. Every single person in it is industry. So many people are designers. Um, so if you ask, like, does this make sense in a contract? Is this a good rate? Like people will tell you right away because um, awesome. it, it is important to protect everybody else. But I'll also say, no, yeah, no, learn your process as you go. If you're somebody who needs to have, you know, a decked out prototype because that's how you translate your theme and go nuts as long as it doesn't slow down your playtesting process, right? It's not making you not finish because you're trying to do all this other stuff because everybody thinks different. And I will say the one thing that I got very discouraged at is everybody kept telling me my games were overproduced as prototypes, but that's literally how I see them in my head. So when I'm trying to translate the game, I'm trying to translate the experience. And that's a big part of that is the visuals, um, because that's how it'll help translate to the player what to do. Like there's so much inferred from visuals and from you know, tones, even from colors. And so using that, you can help teach people very quickly something that wouldn't make, you know, that might take you more time otherwise. And so I try to use those in my actual designs. Um, And I always thought it was weird for doing it. But then I found out that, you know, not only (laughs) did some publishers really appreciate it, and I definitely think it's a big part of my process because I see a ton of user experience through it. Like how someone even interprets a power or a player board, you know, that the layout of it matters. Um, And so I would think of it from from the beginning in some of those terms that people would keep telling me not to do it. And then I realized it's like, no, but that's part of my process and that's okay. So again, as long as figure out your process, figure out what you want to do with a game. But just know, as long as you're not making choices that are intentionally like sabotaging you, like, you know, 
it's going to cause procrastination. It's going to cause you not to finish. It's like, you know, those barriers you put in to kind of cause things to derail. As long as you're not doing that to yourself, your process is your process and it's probably right for you. And you'll keep developing it as you go. Just know that your process might not look like everybody else's, just like you might not look like everybody else. And so, yeah, I just found when I already was the only one who looked like me in the room and I didn't make games the same way other people did, it kind of made me feel at first like I was doing something wrong until I realized that's just my process and my prototypes are always going to look like that. Love it. (laughs) Erica, what are you working on in the future that people should check out? Anything we should be on the lookout for? Um, you know what? Thankfully, the Scott Pilgrim was uh, the the whole six different you know battle arenas was originally just going to be Kickstarter exclusive. They were just going to sell the the base box, but I just got noticed that they're printing at least a thousand more of the expansion. So I'm super excited about that because not only will it keep going, but then anyone who missed out actually has a chance of picking it up still. And so hopefully, you know, popularity will continue to grow. So far. The, uh, the buzz has been really good. People find it really silly and fun. So, uh, and I have asked uh, Renegade if they might be willing to put together a little video on how to assemble the furniture. Uh, just as an out there, I think some people, some people are very intuitive with it and some people aren't. So just to make things a little easier, I have um, maybe like I've suggested, like, why not do a little quick, like, you know, put together a video. The other thing I'll say, you know, especially if you are a fan of the comics, but if you're not, do not worry about it. But Rat Queens uh, to the Slaughter is going to be kickstarted in, I believe, July. And this, I'm actually really excited about this one. It's doing co-op the way I, I haven't really seen it done before. You are very much uh, both independent and dependent on each other. You are basically a all-female adventuring group, um, very kind of like parodied classic D&D. But what you're doing is you are protecting your home palisades from all these invading monsters. And depending on which ones uh, make it into palisades will tell you which of the big bads you are fighting in the end. That's great. I'm really excited about that project. Thank you so much, Erica. Uh, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um, thank you for, jo- and thank you all for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed Inspiration to Publication, episode 14, Bosque. Thanks again, Erica, for joining us. For anyone looking to find you, where can you be reached? Uh, if you look up Erica Boyuris, B O U Y O U R I S, I'm pretty much the only one, I believe. Um, so you'll be able to find me if you go to Twitter. Twitter is pretty much my my gaming space. Um, I don't necessarily accept people on my Facebook. I don't know, uh, but if you message me first before you go to my Facebook because you want to chat about something specific, then I'm much more likely to answer you back. Uh, don't message me on BGG, please, <laughs> because half the time I don't know my password and the other half I'm kind of scared to look. So um, you're much more welcome to go through uh, Facebook or Twitter. Great. Thank you so much again, Erica. This is your host, Denise. You can find me on Twitter at year23. I'll pass over to Ben. Ben can be found on Facebook at uh, as Ben Moy and your friend Ben Moy designs board games. And Danielle. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group. 
on Twitter at Creative DMR and then on Instagram at Token Gamer. And that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks, everyone. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out NoDirectionPodcast.com. Join us next time.